I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Well, thanks, Ken. It's good to be with you. The other day, you mentioned that one of your clients had raised a few issues with you about GST. Uh, Of course, we all pay it on a daily basis, but are there any special issues investors need to consider when it comes to commercial property? Right. Look, as you can appreciate, this is a rather technical subject, and I'm not about to start playing lawyer or accountant here. So everyone's quite clear on that. So what I'll be giving you is a layman's version of how I understand it works as far as commercial property is concerned. Now, like almost everything else, commercial property attracts GST. However, there are several exceptions, which I'll I'll get to in a moment. But in essence, GST is not or was never intended to be a cost for those undertaking commercial transactions as far as property is concerned. You see, if you sell a vacant commercial property which attracts GST, you must pay that GST as the vendor to the tax office. However, you can then claim reimbursement for what you've paid from the purchaser. And in turn, purchasers, assuming that they are registered for GST, can claim reimbursement of what they have paid from the tax office. Therefore, if you think about it, as an investor, GST merely becomes a cash flow issue. In other words, yes, if it's vacant or you're occupying the property or tend to occupy the property you purchase, yes, you will, the contract will say plus GST and it has to be paid. And you as a purchaser pay it as part of the contract that the vendor collects it and pays it on to the tax office. But then you, on your BAS statement, or BAS return, can then claim it as a refund from the tax office. So as I said, it just becomes a cash flow issue. And therefore, in most transactions, people tend not to account for GST in the effect it has on your overall return because, the, as I said, it's an in and an out. It's, it's purely a cash flow issue. Now... As an aside, the payment of GST occurs by lodging your BAS returns, as I mentioned. And you have a choice here. You can either lodge them monthly, quarterly, or on an annual basis. And you're able to choose which it is. Anyway, what I'll do is I'll come back later and I'll explain the significance of that before we finish today. So, you've covered what happens for a vacant commercial property or one that you plan to occupy yourself. How does GST apply when you purchase a commercial commercial property which is 
already tenanted? Actually, it doesn't. However, for that to occur, it assumes that both parties, the vendor and the purchaser, are registered for GST. And let me explain why that is. When GST was framed, it was intended that if somebody sold a business, then there was no GST applicable. In other words, the government considered that the business moving from one hand to another was going to continue to generate accessible income and therefore it was decided that there would be no GST applicable to what is called a going concern. And so the principle has been established that that applies to a tenanted property. In other words, property sold with a tenant in place is an investment or a business and is deemed to be a going concern. So you're effectively buying someone else's income stream and at settlement it becomes your income stream, generating accessible income and therefore it is deemed to be a business and therefore a going concern and as such it doesn't attract any GST. So Whereas with a a vacant property, you are obliged to, as the vendor, collect from the purchaser the GST and remit it to the tax office, and then it goes a circuit and the purchaser claims it back on their BAS return. That, as I said, is a cash flow issue. It doesn't even arise when it comes to investment property, and I'm talking commercial property here. So... It's important you understand that because it's not a matter of not having to allow for it. It's not even a payment and a recoupment as far as the purchases are concerned. It just does not apply to a an investment sale. Now, one thing you do need to keep in mind, however, <clears throat> is that whenever there is what's called a sale and leaseback, that can create some problems. Now, before you ask, what that is, Ken, I'll explain. It's when a vendor becomes the tenant at settlement. In other words, the vendor may be an owner-occupier but agrees to sell the property and lease it back as from settlement. Now, there's a bit of a grey area here in that technically right up to until settlement, the property from a real estate point of view, is not generating income itself. The business in the property is, the, 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 the company that's there, but the property itself is not generating any income. And so you have to be very careful as a purchaser that you, you don't end up unwittingly, by law, effectively purchase a vacant property. Now, I know the day after settlement the lease starts, but when settlement occurs, the property is technically an owner-occupier and therefore deemed to be vacant and not a business or a going concern. So the way around that is to have the lease with the vendor to be entered into with a company that's different from the company or, or ownership entity, which may be an individual. So in other words, Let's assume that 
the land is owned by ABC Proprietary Limited, the business is Office Supplies Proprietary Limited, whatever the name is. So prior to settlement, whether it exists now or not, a lease needs to be entered into on the agreed terms between ABC and Office Supplies Proprietary Limited so that it is in existence at the time settlement takes place. So therefore, even though effectively ABC and Office Supplies Proprietary Limited are one and the same as far as beneficial ownership is concerned, from a legal point of view, it is a an arm's length relationship in that the lease exists with a separate entity and arguably seeing it's the terms you're buying it on reflects a market rental. So therefore that steps around the issue of you effectively purchasing a vacant property at settlement and having to pay out and then recoup capital gains tax. So so what we're trying to do is preserve that deeming of it being a going concern so that GST is not an issue as far as the purchase is concerned. You've mentioned the term registered for GST several times now. Does every investor need to be registered for GST? And how do you go about doing that? Well, this is where you actually have a further possible exemption. Now, you see, if your business, and as we've discussed, for a commercial property investor that becomes the purchase of the property, if that generates less than $75,000 per annum in revenue, then there is no need for you to be registered for GST. Now, you may well register so as to avoid paying GST on the purchase price when you purchase it as an investment and also reclaim the GST on various other acquisition costs. In other words, firstly, you avoid it because you're registered, but secondly, you're going to have to pay legal fees, maybe accountancy fees, evaluation for lending purposes and so on, other acquisition costs relating to the purchase of the property, all of which will, because those entities charging them will have businesses earning more than $75,000 a year, therefore they will be registered for GST, therefore they will be obliged to charge you their fees and costs plus GST. Now, unless you are registered for GST, you have to wear that. You can't claim them back on your BAS return. So what you then may choose to do is to deregister your ownership structure, which may in fact be yourself. You can personally be registered for GST. It doesn't have to be a trust or a, a company. But you de- you then, re- after you've recouped those, deregister for GST, and and that would be arguably something you should do if you plan to manage the property yourself. Now, I think, Ken, you know my thoughts on that, and it's not that I manage property at all, I don't, for clients, but I would strongly counsel you against trying to manage your own property. I mean, look, 
you may feel you, you're doing it to save some money. However, you are potentially leaving yourself exposed to things like your building failing to comply with the various essential services requirements. And there are so many new things being introduced almost on a monthly basis that property owners need to be aware of. So anyway, if if you do, as I would suggest, use a managing agent, you'll then need to be registered for GST because their monthly invoices to your tenant sent out on your behalf will be plus GST, which your tenant will then be obliged to reimburse for you under the lease. So, again, as an aside, the legislation provides for council water rates, land tax and those other governmental charges to be exempt from GST when they are paid for by you being the owner of the property. However, as soon as you seek reimbursement from your tenant, that's then considered a service being provided and therefore will attract GST. Now, as you can see, it all starts to become fairly messy and this is what happens when you try to manage the property yourself. However, your managing agent will provide you with a detailed statement at the end of each month that covers all of this. That should contain a summary of all the income you've received, the expenses, the GST collected on your behalf, which will enable you to complete your BAS return. Or alternatively, you may choose to have your accountant provided with those details so that that he or she can prepare the BAS return on your behalf. And remember, you get to reclaim any GST that you happen to pay in relation to any of the expenses incurred with owning and managing the property. So if you've had to pay any expenses, whether whether they be rates or some maintenance expenses, if the tenant doesn't reimburse you for those in full, you at least get to reclaim the GST component. If you have to do some upgrade or refurbishment, you have to pay the tradespeople and the GST that they will charge. Again, being registered for GST means that you can recoup that along the way. So while, yes, having a property which may have an annual income of less than $75,000 doesn't necessarily have the advantages that you might expect by not you not registering for GST because you forego then the ability to reclaim all the GST that's charged to you in relation to the property. Now, as far as how to register, that's really simple. You can do it online. You just go to the relevant government page and I'll dig out that link, Ken, and I'll I'll give it to you to put up on the web page. But you simply fill out the form online, lodge it, and you will then be provided with an ABN number. And that, if you do have a company, sometimes if you're applying in a company name, 
they simply add a couple of digits before your ACN number. More often than not, they'll issue a completely new number. But if you're an individual, you will have your own number and that's what you refer to on all your invoices and, and you have to call them tax invoices, sending them to the tenant if you're, you're managing the property yourself. If not, the managing agent will do all of that on your behalf, but you will need to be registered for GST when you have a managing agent. So I'll find that link and if our listeners would like to come back to propertybriefings.com and I think this is episode 44. So if you go there at the, beneath the podcast on the website, you'll find a link to the uh, relevant government page where you can get the form. Now you can either download it and fill it out offline, but it's just as easy to fill it out online and submit it, and then they will supply you with a, an ABN number. Do you have any final thoughts on GST before we wrap up today's podcast? Well, once again, it, it's only my practical understanding of how GST applies to commercial property. And therefore, I do strongly recommend that our listeners talk further about this with their accountant to work out what would be the best approach in the circumstances. Anyway, one last suggestion. If you opt to submit your BAS returns annually, what it means is that you receive from the tenant the income throughout the year, including GST. So I would recommend you separate out the GST component of the money you receive and place it into a separate high-interest earning account so that you don't inadvertently spend it. Now, legally, it's not yours. You're only collecting it on behalf of the tax department. However, that doesn't mean you can't earn interest on it. Now, the other little tip I'd give you, which I mentioned I'd come back to, was I said you can lodge your statements monthly, quarterly or annually. If you find that you are purchasing a vacant property which incurs GST and you won't be leasing it out and therefore it's not a management issue, it's purely a, a cash flow issue. Or if you do intend to continue to lease it out or put a tenant in there, what you do is you initially opt to lodge a monthly BAS return. So in other words, within no more than a month of you settling on the property, you can then recoup not only your GST on the purchase of the property, but GST on the various consultants related to helping you purchase the property. At that point, you then either deregister or if you want to remain registered, then opt to lodge them annually. So in other words, instead of having to lodge monthly returns or even quarterly returns, which can get become a bit of a fiddle, you then do it only annually. And that's where that point I made before is when you do have it annually, just make sure you don't spend the money. It isn't yours, but you can earn interest on it. So initially, go for monthly BAS returns and then opt for annually. You can't. You can only opt 
or change your choices once. In other words, you, you can go annually and then monthly or quarterly, but you, once you choose monthly and then go annually, then from there on, it remains annual BAS returns. But as far as I'm concerned, I'd rather have the money in my bank, in my pocket earning interest, albeit as a custodian for the tax department, and then remitting it at the end of the financial year. Anyway, look, I do hope what we've covered today has helped to provide our listeners with a better understanding of just how GST works in practice. Well, it certainly has for me because there have always been a number of grey areas as far as I was concerned. So thanks for explaining all of that so clearly to us. And, and as you said at the outset, our listeners also need to make sure they discuss this with their accountants. However, at least they will now have enough background to be asking the right questions. 